Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. Genesis 34 tonight. One of those chapters in the Bible I'd rather not teach. Very honest. There's a lot of yuck in this chapter. But you know one of the things it reminds us of? God is willing to be in our yuck. And he doesn't turn his backs on us when we're in the yuck. You know, before I get into the message tonight, just a couple of things. No one, no one drifts toward God. We can drift away from God, but no one can drift toward God. It reminds us that we have to live very intentionally, very deliberately. And that's one of the things that we see here with Jacob. When he lives intentionally and deliberately and stays on the right path, so many good things happen to him, through him, and around him. But when he drifts away from God and he stops partnering with the Lord, he begins to experience a lot of loss and pain and, and struggle. And you and I are the same. And so it's just a good reminder to us to just remember none of us can drift toward God. We have to be intentional and prioritize our lives toward him. The other thing that we learn is that this chapter reminds us how important it is that we study the Bible in its context. Because everything that happens in this chapter is because Jacob failed to go to Bethel like God directed him to in earlier chapters. If he would have kept on moving and not stopped short of the destination that God called him to, these events in chapter 34 could have been prevented. That's important for us to be reminded of. And then you will see, if you just take a quick glance, at the first verse of chapter 35, this is why after this mess, God comes to Jacob and says, now, Jacob, get to Bethel at once. You've got to come back to the house of God. You have got to come back to worship. And you'll note there that as soon as Jacob gets back to Bethel in chapter 35, and we're going to see this in a couple weeks, he builds an altar and he begins to worship the Lord again. So what I want to remind us of, even before we get into this mess of chapter 34, is that Jacob, in many ways, bears responsibility for what takes place here, okay? 
by not completing his journey and moving past Shechem and going to Bethel. And yet, secondly, we are reminded of how, again, gracious and merciful and forgiving and loving and that God is the God of second chances over and over again because he still is, if you will, striving with Jacob. He is still, if you will, wrestling with Jacob. And he's not going to give up on Jacob any more than he gives up on us. And when we get off track, God is right there to course correct us and get us back on track and give us direction of how to get back on the path with him. And we will always get back on the path with him when we start with worship. Bethel, Bethel. Well, let's get into chapter 34 tonight and see what it has for us. I've entitled this chapter, Tragedy and Treachery. There is no Hollywood movie that has more tragedy and treachery included in it than what Genesis chapter 34 has. In fact, there have been times that I have taught this passage in the past to a very mixed audience, including many young people, and I have warned parents that uh, at that point, I was like, it's like a PG-13. Now, I'm not going to do that tonight. But it, it's pretty bad. So let's see what we can glean from this chapter tonight besides what we've already talked about. And again, keep in mind, this chapter comes on the heels of Jacob stopping short of where God wanted him to be. Now Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she bore to Jacob, went to meet the young women of the land. Uh, please, especially you gals, hear my heart. What is going to happen to Dinah is horrific. And I am not here to say tonight that in any way do I feel that Dinah bears responsibility for what happens to her. But I must point out, because this is a teachable chapter and something that we have to teach and pass on to our children and grandchildren and young people, is that we have to be careful, especially in unknown situations, that we don't make unwise choices. And I think that the Bible is reminding us that this young woman, in a very strange place where she doesn't know anybody, is making an unwise decision and maybe even her parents by allowing her to do what she does is also dropping the ball as parents 
by allowing this young woman to go out into the unknown of this area by herself, alone. And that's exactly what is happening here. Dinah is going out into this area where they don't know anybody, they don't know what people are like or anything, and she goes out alone. Verse 2. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, who ruled the area, saw her, he grabbed her, forced himself on her, and sexually assaulted her. Basically, Dinah was raped by Shechem. A couple things that I wrote down to remind myself of and to pass on to others. We can't live taking everything we see or getting everything we want. Obviously, this is a pagan. He doesn't know God, and yet we're going to see in this chapter even the people who knew God weren't going to act any better, though they should have. Here's a man who sees this young woman and takes her. We have to learn, and we have to again pass this on to our other generations. You can't take everything you see. Everything you see isn't something for you to take. And you can't get everything that you want in life. You can't live that way or else you will cause yourself great pain and you will certainly bring pain and suffering to many other people around you. It is very obvious here that this sexual encounter with Shechem is not consensual. He overpowers this young woman and he has sexual intercourse with her. Verse 2. I can't, I can't speak much to that. All I can say is this is tragic. This is horrific. I, I can't imagine now what this young woman is going to have to carry with her for the rest of her life. By the way, very interestingly, her name comes from the root justice. Well, this young wom wom woman has had something very unjust done to her. And as I said, though she may have been unwise in going out to an unfamiliar territory alone, she bears no responsibility in what happened to her that day. I believe that Jacob, her father, bears responsibility because he put her in this position by not moving to Bethel, and obviously Shechem bears responsibility for what happened to her. Then we come to verse 3, and all I can tell you is from reading and studying and pouring over the words and, and the Hebrew and all of this, 
I believe that this young man who obviously had many issues in his life to do what he did to this young woman, in some way after he committed this horrific act, I think his heart towards her went from one of, say, lust and simply looking at her as a sexual object, something to have, a trophy, to actually having legitimate and real and genuine feelings for her after the fact. Now, again, the Bible's clear that that's true. That does not mean that it was okay what he did. It is simply telling us, though, the reality is this. He did this terrible thing to her, and yet at some point, his heart towards her changed in some way. Because it says in verse 3 that he became very attached. It, it means he wanted to be extremely close to her. And it had nothing to do with having sexual encounters with her. There was something about Dinah that drew him to her. Jacob's daughter. By the way, I do want to point this out because God doesn't waste words. Did you note in verse 1 that Dinah is referred to as Leah's daughter, and now in verse 3, she's referred to as Jacob's daughter? We know that Jacob favored Rachel and favored the children that Rachel bore to him over the children that all the others bore to him. And it is very possible in my mind that one of the reasons why Jacob wasn't on the ball as a father here, especially to a daughter, goes back to this terrible thing of favoring certain family members and certain children over others and not taking the responsibility, especially as a father, for a daughter. I mean, obviously I have one, you all know. And if you have both boys and girls as parents, you do certainly look at them differently, especially from a father's perspective. There's something innately that I think God puts into a father, not that you don't care about your son or sons, but you feel that it is your responsibility to protect that daughter of yours until you hand her over to another one at some point. Jacob failed to do that in this case. And I think by reminding us in verse 1 that, oh, yeah, Dinah was Leah's daughter. But, yeah, Jacob's daughter, too, that maybe part of his deficiency was going back to that whole favoring thing that messed up his family as well, which goes back to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And you see then how the sins 
of families can be passed on through generations unless somebody puts a stop to it. Notice it also says in verse 3, he literally fell in love with Dinah and spoke romantically to her. That, that means he spoke his heart to her. He felt that he could bear his heart to this young woman. And by the way, this word love is not toned down in any way. This is the same word, love, that is used of Shechem for Dinah that is used of Abraham for Isaac. Before God calls Abraham to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. It was, it's a great love. It's strong. So again, what this young man did, tragic, terrible, horrific. But at some point, something began to turn in him towards this young woman that he did this terrible thing to. Shechem then says to his father, verse 4, acquire this young girl as my wife. I want her to be my wife. Now again, I realize we're trying to see things through the eyes of our lives and our culture and today and all of that. And it's really hard for us to, you know, understand treating women in, in such a way that they're almost like property, but that's the way it was back then, especially in a pagan situation. And yet I will say this too, knowing the culture, he's at least also willing to take responsibility for this young woman and to now be her husband, to help her raise this child, if a child is born out of this and all of that, Dinah would have had a very difficult time in that culture, even in her own family, if she would have remained single at that point. So, he at least in some way is showing a little character here after not showing any character for what he did to her in verse 2. When Jacob heard, verse 5, that Shechem had violated his daughter Dinah, his sons were with the livestock in the field, and notice what Jacob does. He remains silent until they come in. I've asked the Lord to try to keep my emotions down a little bit in this because immediately I even just like my blood pressure starts to rise. And please, I'm not sitting in judgment of Jacob. That's not my place. But Jacob here is totally absolving himself of who he is supposed to be as a parent and especially as the leader of a family and a father. And he and his family is going to pay a very high price for his passivity. Let me say this. 
in all love. There are too many Christian parents today who are way too passive when it comes to rearing, training, and raising their children. You cannot read and study the Bible and see all the instructions that God gives parents about how God says we should raise our children and being passive and remaining silent in situations is not the way of effective parenting. It will only come back to cause greater problems in the future. Now, I'm not saying to be the kind of parent that is smothering, that is provoking your children to anger, that is no grace at all. I'm not saying, I'm saying be balanced. Be loved, but be disciplined. That's what the Bible teaches. The parent who spares the rod is going to end up regretting sparing the rod. That's what Proverbs teaches. There must be discipline with love. You've got to have balance. Jacob was an unbalanced, unengaged father, and his family pays the price for it. I don't know about you, but if I would have just heard that my daughter was raped, I would not be silent, okay? And we're going to see the overreaction on the other side of it later on. Verse 6, then Shechem, father Hamor, went to speak with Jacob about Dinah. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the field when they heard the news. They were offended. Literally in the Hebrew, they were cut to the heart. It was like a knife. And very angry, burning with anger. Because Shechem had disgraced Israel by sexually assaulting Jacob's daughter, a crime that should not be committed. Now let me point this out. You don't get this in the English translation, but in the Hebrew it is clear that what is being pointed out here is that when Jacob's sons come back, they are expressing the fact that this act that was done to their sister was disgraceful by Israel's standards. In other words, they are aware that they are, have a distinctive lifestyle from the pagans that they are encountering, that God's standard for them is different. In other words, in other cultures, this would be acceptable. In fact, if you read history, this is crazy, but there are many times in those ancient days where raping a woman was a way of getting her as your wife. And basically, Jacob's sons are saying, we don't act that way. We are living a higher standard here. And that's important for us to remember. We are living in a world of darkness, a world of lawlessness. And as Christians, we are called to a different standard than the world. We are called to live distinctively from the world. And they even express that. Very interesting, though, they're not going to act differently later on. They're actually going to act 
just like the world does. Verse 8, Hamor made this appeal to them. My son Shechem is in love with your daughter. Well, that's rich. Because that might be true, but did you know too here, because I've, I've jumped on Jacob a lot for parenting. Did you notice that Hamor, the father of Shechem, hasn't said anything about, oh yeah, my son was really wrong in what he did. No addressing the fact that he rapes this girl. It's like Hamor just sort of passes over that and goes, well, let's just get him married and that'll make everything okay. No. No. Sorry, I've had a lot of time to sit with this passage. There's just a lot of emotion going on here, right? Please give her to him as his wife. Then look at verse 9. Intermarry with us. Oh, oh. Stopping at Shechem was such a bad idea because now then, now there's even the whole thing of intermarrying. And God has told his people from the very beginning, when you go into the land, do not intermarry. These people are idolaters. Be a witness to them, be a light to them, but do not intermarry with them. And now they're in this place where they've stopped short of Bethel. And now not only has Dinah been raped, but now they're setting themselves up for all this intermarriage. Oh my goodness, look at all the different layers that is happening by this one choice of this man, Jacob, not going all the way with God. Let us marry your daughters. Take our daughters as wives for yourselves. You may live among us and the land will be open to you. Live in it, travel freely in it, acquire property in it. Sounds like a good sales pitch, right? Guess what? If you go over to verse 23, his true intentions, meaning Hamor's, are revealed. If we do so, he told the other people, won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? So let's consent to their demand so they will live among us. It wasn't pure motives for him to want to be intermarried with the Israelites. They saw how prosperous the Israelites were because of God's hand upon them, and they wanted some of it. That was their motive. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor or grace in your sight. Again, that's pretty rich. And whatever you require of me, I'll give. You can make the bride price and the gift I must bring very expensive, and I'll give you whatever you ask of me. Just give me the young woman as my wife. Now notice verse 13 again. Jacob continues to remain silent. Doesn't say a word. Who answers? His sons. That's not their place. It is the father's place to step up and be the leader. And Jacob is just sort of passively sitting back and not taking the leadership, absolving himself of the leadership of the family, and he's continuing to dig a deeper and deeper hole, as we're going to see before this chapter ends. Notice what the sons of Jacob do. They answered Shechem and his father deceitfully. 
Do you know that same word is used back in Genesis to describe the serpent when he comes to Eve? Whoa, are we the people of God to treat other people that way? No. Now listen, I'm all about getting angry and getting justice for what happened to Dinah, but now deceiving them? No, that's not the way to respond. And so one of the things we also learn in chapter 34 is this, and this is a biblical principle. We cannot always control what happens to us or what others do to us, but what we can always control is what is our response back. Is our response back the response that God wants us to have? And it is clear in this passage of Scripture that the way Jacob is responding, or should I say not responding, and the way his sons respond is not the way God would want us to respond in such a situation. Remember, you cannot control what others do to you, but we can all control what our response is back once it is done. They spoke because Shechem had violated their sister, Dinah. They said to them, we cannot give our sister to a man who's not circumcised, for it would be a disgrace to us. Verse 15, we will give you our consent on this one condition. You must become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters to marry, and we will take your daughters as wives for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people. But if you do not agree to our terms of being circumcised, then we will take our sister and depart. That's a lie. They have no intentions of doing all that. They are using this very sacred ceremony and symbolism of circumcision, which God gave his people to set them apart as distinct, and they're using it as a cover for sin and wickedness. Treachery. It's like people down through history who have used religion to harm and hurt other people. That's exactly what Jacob's sons are doing. They're using their religion, if you will, to hurt and harm these other people. Instead of being a blessing to those around them, they're now deceiving them because they've got something planned, something that goes way beyond seeking justice for what happened to Dinah, their sister. Verse 18, their offer pleased Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay in doing what they asked because he wanted Jacob's daughter, Dinah, badly. He truly delighted. The, the words here speak about a delighted and excited attention. He loved being with this young gal. And he was more important than anyone in his father's household. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city and said, these men are at peace with us. No, no, they're not. 
So let them live in the land and travel freely in it, for this land is wide enough for them. We will take their daughters for wives. We will give them our daughters to marry. Only on this one condition will these men consent to live with us and become one people. They demand that every male among us be circumcised, so just as they are circumcised, if we do, then won't their livestock, their property, we've talked about that, then be ours. So notice, verse 24, all the men who assembled at the city gate agreed with Hamar and his son Shechem. Every male who had assembled at the city gate was circumcised. And then notice, in three days, when they were still in pain, because guess what? Jacob's sons knew that the third day after circumcision was the peak of pain. So they knew that that was very intentional that they knew that they would be incapacitated and not be able to defend themselves three days after they were circumcised. Very, very premeditated, right? Simeon and Levi, the oldest full brothers of Dinah, each took his sword and went to the unsuspecting city and murdered every male. Oh, yeah, that's the way the people of God are to respond. They killed Hamor. They killed his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Then Jacob's sons killed them and then plundered the city because their sister had been violated. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, as well as everything in the city and the surrounding fields. They captured as plunder all their wealth, all their little ones, their children, and their wives, including everything in their house. Tragedy and treachery. And finally, oh, guess what? Finally, Jacob wakes up and he responds. But guess why he responds? He responds because now it's all about him. He doesn't really care about what happened to his daughter Dinah. He doesn't care about what happened to all the Shechemites. He cares about himself. That's what he cares about. And now this great patriarch of the faith who has so many high moments with God is looking really low right now because, because he has drifted from the worship of his God and he's not in a good place and he's not leading his family in an effective way. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you've brought, in fact, look at all the times the word me is used. You brought ruin on me by making me a foul odor among the inhabitants of the land. I am few in number, and they will join forces against me and attack me, and both I and my family will be destroyed. It's all about him. That's finally when he wakes up and starts talking, because now it affects him. Not a good leader. I will leave you with just a couple of thoughts. First of all, by not being the leader he should have been, Jacob now has an even greater situation to deal with. Remember I said that at the beginning? Passivity as a parent or as a leader even, as a pastor, 
will come back to haunt you. If you don't take care of a situation properly here, it's only going to grow in magnitude down here. And then you're going to have way more of a mess to deal with down here by being too passive back here. And one other principle. Jacob's lack of response throughout this ordeal ignited in his sons an inappropriate response. That always happens, doesn't it? You see it in our society, don't you? Doesn't matter whether it's conservative or liberal or whatever. It doesn't matter. Even in our society, in our country, when a, what we deem lack of response is given by someone in leadership, it ignites an inappropriate response in return. That's a biblical principle. And here is Jacob, who did not give a proper response, and that just, if he would have been the leader and the father that he should have been, back when that all happened with Dinah, then his sons would not have been so bent on taking matters and justice and vengeance and all of that into their own hands and slaughtering a whole city. And yet, I'm going to end with this. What does God do with all this? What does God do with Jacob? Well, look at chapter 35. God said to Jacob, go up at once to Bethel and live there. Live there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Get back to the house of God, Jacob, and get back to worship. Is there anyone like God? I mean, first of all, God shows that, you know, even his own people. I mean, he, that, that's part of why the Bible is the, is the Bible, because if man wrote the Bible, we'd paint ourselves in such good condition. We'd, you know, make everybody... You know, look at, look at how well. No, God, God gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly. And yet God is right there in all of it, being faithful to Jacob in all of this and saying, Jacob, I'm not letting go of you. I still got plans and purposes for you. You just need to come back to me. And God, in a sense, is not only getting him back on track, as we're going to see in chapter 35, but he's offering him a new start after all the mess that happens in chapter 34. That's a God worth worshiping. A God of that kind of grace that in spite of how we can so mess our lives up and mess other people's lives up, God is right there to say, all right, hopefully you've learned from this. Let's get back on track. 
and let's keep going. And that's what God wants to say to all of us tonight. If you're on track with me, start with worship, keep worshiping, and stay on track. If you've gotten off the track, course correction, get back to the house of God, get back to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that, Lord, you're the God of reality. You're the God of real life. You, you show us all sides of everything. You show us the dirty underbelly many times of what's going on. And God, how you see it all and are in it all and engage with it all and yet work with us through it all. You're in our messes. You're in our yuck. You're willing to come down and be a part of it and get us through it and get us beyond it and get us past it and to grow from it and to learn from it and all of that, God. What patience you have with us. What grace you bestow upon us. What mercy you pour out to us, God. You are an amazing God. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that wherever we are on our journey with you, that we have learned most of all that we cannot drift toward God, that we must be intentional in our relationship to you. No one has ever drifted toward you. We can drift from you, but not toward you. So help us, God, to be more intentional when it comes to you in our life. And if we're on the path we need to be on, then God, may we stay on it as we continue to worship you and live out from our worship. If we've gotten off the path you want us to be on, then God, we know how to get back on. We get back to the house of God. We get back to the primacy of worship in our life. God, thank you for showing us how we get back on track with you. You don't just show us where we've went wrong. You show us how to get things right again. And we thank you for that, Lord. Would you use this very dark chapter in your word, God, to remind us of some really important principles? In these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thank you for hanging in there with me during the night. We'll see you next week.